you're all doing well with your things and your stuff. It is time for us to talk about the legend of Korra. And when I say we're going to talk about it, I mean we're going to talk about the whole ding dang show. Because I have just finished watching the end of season four over the course of a week. Not the whole show. Whole show in about a week. Um, that's one thing I'll, I'll say for it. Seasons are pretty short. Long seasons, 14 episodes. And unfortunately for everybody involved, it was the worst season. Um, but we're going to talk about them one season at a time. Pros and cons and what I, I like and dislike about the show is pretty much an entirety. So let's, let's get right into it. Season one was pretty okay, I'm going to say overall. Now, you have to, you, you got to remember a couple of things when we talk about season one. One, it was, it's the follow-up show to Avatar The Last Airbender. So the shoes could not be bigger to fill. Number two, I remember watching this fucking show on nick.com um maybe not for season one but definitely those later seasons because essentially what happened was that was the only way you could watch it um it it like it left like actual cable tv and the only way you could see it was online at least that's my memory of it um god fucking can only tell what goddamn season that actually was i want to say it was three um, because like everything changed between season two and season three, but I'll get into that. So big shoes to fill it, you know, it's 70 years later after the events of, um, last airbender, uh, which makes Aang like 80 ish when he died, which if you ask me is pretty fucking young. But if you ask me, I think one of the primary reasons that it's set about 70 years later was that this show could employ one of the great fallbacks of any sequel show, which is fan service callbacks. Now, Next Generation is usually my go-to for fan service callbacks. And I've mentioned this before. I don't know where, but I've mentioned this before. That both Korra and uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, and even fucking the, the newest generation of My Little Pony all pulled the same trick which is in the beginning of the brand new show they would have a character that represented the old show it was bones in next generation it's katara here and it's the main six in my little pony so they all do the exact same trick and it's not a bad trick except cora goes far beyond just having katara hanging around and introduces or rather resuscitates a bunch of old elements from Avatar The Last Airbender constantly throughout the entire show. I don't think that's a bad thing. And you could also kind of spin it into acting as a metaphor for Korra's journey, right? In filling Aang's shoes. And in the show is trying to fill the shoes of The Last Airbender. So you can kind of, you can kind of make that argument for it. Um, and... Most of the time, it's fine. Sometimes it's a little on the nose, but it's never, like, upsetting. But they're not comforting at the same time. It's like when you read Harry Potter and you see the word PlayStation. It kind of takes you out of it a little bit. Because by having the callback, you're immediately reminded of the previous show, and then you just want to watch that instead. So, it, the core is not doing itself any favors by having all these callbacks. Especially when 9 times out of 10, those callbacks service as, like, deus ex problem-solving machinas. You know, like, that's... I know what deus ex machina means, and I'm just kind of fucking up, but that's fine. So, there's that to point out as well. Um, couple of key... I mean, you can't really talk about the show without talking about the characters. And... Most of the characters are pretty solid. There's a couple that I find to be particularly ineffectual. Um, but Korra is definitely not one of them. And this show was going to make or break on Korra. 
It was so fucking essential to get Korra right. And there's a couple of key differences between Aang and Korra that I feel like are in Korra's favor. One, she's older. She starts the show at 16 and she ends the show at 20. Um, or 21, depending on how you want to calculate out that math. Um, she's 16 at the start of the show. It's a year in between. Or it's like, it's the next year when season two rolls around. It's a couple months later when season three begins. And then there's a three-year gap between the events of season three and season four. So she's about 19, 20, 21, depending on when her fucking birthday is. Um, but I think that was an essential and fantastic change. Uh, she's older. She's uh, very bullheaded. She's incredibly confident. She's stoked as fuck to be the Avatar, which Aang like, basically never was. Um, and she's, she's ready to kick some ass. Um, I absolutely love Korra. I think Korra is a phenomenal character. I think her adventures and how she grows as a person is phenomenal. She is easily, and I say this with a lot of confidence, the most developed character across all the seasons because she gets the most screen time and she grows the most as a person. And I'm going to defend that with arguments about all the other characters. But we haven't even met them yet. At the beginning of the show, she's down in the Southern Water Tribe. Mastering fire, air, or fire, earth, and, and water. And according to the show, she did. I want to I wanna clarify that. We never see her train on those elements ever, 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 ever again, really. Um, so for all intents and purposes, she's a 75%. Well, I mean, probably less once you take into like the spiritual crap. Um, but she's, she's a, a very decent bender in her own right. She can't, she can't ever bend though. So she's got to go learn from Tenzin, who is gorgeously played by J.K. Simmons. Also, Janet Varney plays Korra. I want to give the, the actors a lot of props for this show because regardless of how I feel about their characters, all of the actors did a phenomenal job, including Janet Varney and J.K. Simmons. So she's got to go train with Tenzin and Tenzin is, uh, one of Aang's three kids. We've got Tenzin, the airbending master, who he and of himself has three kids at the beginning of the show, ends up with a fourth um, by the end of season one. Um, Tenzin's brother, Boomy, who is a uh, general in the United Republic Army, and then their sister, Kaya, who is a waterbender slash healer who took after Katara. Tenzin can't stay in the Southern Pole to train Korra because the shit's going down in Republic City. He's got to go back. And Republic City was this bastion of unified peace that Aang developed with Zuko. I believe, correct me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, Republic City is the evolution of the Fire Nation colonies um, because it's in Earth Kingdom territory, but that's I believe that's what's happened here. Um, so they built Republic City and because of the time jump, we are in essentially like the 1930s when it comes to technology. Um, you got blimps, you got cars, you got electricity, you got steampunk. The aesthetic of this show is fantastic. I mean, yeah, let's get a couple things right out of the gate. I love the tech. I love Republic City. I think the show's tech like balance and the development of the technology over the course of the show is really good. I think makes a lot of sense. Everything that they add in terms of that stuff is rad. I think the animation quality of this show is phenomenal. I think the music of this show is phenomenal. I think the acting performance is great. Those are all, like, technically, fundamentally, the show excels. And everything that the show needs to do as, like, a basic fundamental aspect of being a show, it does that very well. Where the show kind of falls flat is with some of its characters and some of the storylines. That's, that's my big, my big thing. But um, in order for us to... I'm going to try to blast through some of these episodes. Because we got an entire fucking show to talk about. So, yeah. She eventually goes off to Republic City. And she's she's struggling with her airbending. And she gets really into this thing called probending. Which is a really fun addition to the show. However, after season one and a little bit in season two. It doesn't really fucking matter. But I love it for introducing uh, Mako and Bolin. Both of whom are played phenomenally by their respective actors, who I will now Google. I know Bolin is played by uh, PJ Byrne, I want to say his name is. Um, forgive me if I got that wrong. Let me just double check. 
uh, casting characters. PJ Byrne, fuck yeah. And David Festino plays Mako, who of course is named uh, in honor of the original voice actor for Iroh. Bolin is good. I like Bolin. He is comedic comedy effect. Um, he is essentially just the buddy. He's the pal. Nothing wrong with Bolin. He's an earthbender. He's not very good at it. Uh, but he gets better as the show goes on, eventually learning the skill lava bending, which is neat. I don't like Mako. I don't. He serves a bad purpose, as far as I'm concerned, but that's probably due to my own biases. And this might come as a surprise, um, especially because this is one of my favorite things about the show, and one of the best reasons to age these characters up a little bit is the romance. Fucking Korra dates Bolin for a little while. She gets the hots for Mako. And Mako and Asami, you know, like, there's a lot of romance going on here. There's a lot of romantic tension. And the first season, it's not bad. It's just a little classic. Um, especially when we consider where the show goes um, towards the end. But I'll get to that in a second. Um, but yeah, in the beginning, Korra likes Mako. Mako and Asami start going out. Um, Mako rejects Korra's feelings. Korra goes through some struggles. Mako realizes he likes Korra. They even say they love each other out at the end of the season, blah, blah, blah. It's a fine romantic story. It's a little played out. Um, my problem with Mako is that he just doesn't have a lot going on for his character. He's just kind of there. He never really does anything. Um, and I feel like elements of his personality are embodied better in other fucking characters. Um, and in later seasons, his primary, uh, contribution to the show is for, like, romantic conflict. And then his, his character becomes the problem, if that makes sense. Like, he just embodies the problematic relationships, either between himself and Korra or himself and Asami or himself and literally anybody. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't like Mako as a character. I don't feel like... He takes away more from the show than he brings to the table as far as anything is concerned. Um, and any fun elements of Mako and Bolin's like character development and story is told better through Bolin. And indeed, Bolin's character arc is more interesting to me than Mako's. Um, kind of by a long shot. Um, but yeah. And, that, and let me just flip script since I mentioned her. Asami, right? Uh, who is arguably the second most important character in the show. Um, at least when it comes to uh, romance. And her character growth over the course of the show is interesting. She goes through a lot. Um, but you could argue that she goes through the same thing twice. Which is the loss of her father. Um, see, the like, I don't want to say Asami really grows as a character... Because to be perfectly honest, she doesn't really change from the beginning of the show to the end of the show. She was always like a pretty solid, sympathetic, ass-kicking person who would solve her problems using technology and dealt with an asshole of a dad. And that's pretty much all she ever did. And I don't want to minimize, but to be perfectly honest, I don't, I can't think of anything else. Like, in season two, she loses her business. Um, in season three, she's just kind of there. Um, and in season four, she's there a little bit more. Um, and then, obviously, the ending of the show. But outside of that, she doesn't really do a whole lot. I still love Asami. Um, they just don't do a lot. But unlike Mako, they're more, like, neutral rather than actively damaging the show, which I feel he does. Um, so, unlike... Unlike Avatar Last Airbender, which I can't think of a single character I dislike, this show's characters are not as strong. I feel like they, they spent a lot of time and energy making Korra excellent, which is a smart fucking call, because goddamn, that was so important. Um, and maybe on the supporting cast, some shit kind of fell by the wayside. Um, yeah, we're just gonna move on. A lot of stuff happens. Uh, Korra joins the pro-bending team, um, and then the bad guy starts to make themselves known. And while the supporting characters in this show are problematic, one thing that you cannot say about the show is that it has bad villains. Even the worst of the lot 
is still pretty good. And the reason these villains are good is because they all have my favorite thing, which is moral ambiguity. If, if you can see a villain and you can see from their point of view and you can sympathize with some of their points, that's some good goddamn moral ambiguity. Shades of Grey. I love it. I absolutely adore it. Ozai was a fucking comic book villain. He was this big bad motherfucker who was going to destroy the planet. Great goddamn villain. Plus, outside of some minor other villains, Azula, um, or Longfang, Ozai was basically your lot the entire fucking show. That being said, he also doesn't really make his appearance until like halfway through the final season. But it was still, it's the threat of Ozai. He's basically Sauron. Um, Sauron's never directly fighting the hobbits. But the influence of Sauron is permanently over, hanging over your head, you know? And that's that's a great way to do a villain. What Korra did, which I thought was kind of fun, is it's almost like a Monster of the Week thing where each season presents, develops, conflict, climaxed, and destroys a new villain each season. Which makes for a really cool, almost anthological style of show. Where you don't necessarily have to have seen the previous season in order to enjoy the following season. The exception being seasons three and four, which I am convinced were written at the same time. um, Because of how closely linked those two seasons are. They probably were, in the grand scheme of things. Um, But Amon is the season one villain. And he's all about equality. um, Which is actually a theme that you'll hear quite a bit throughout this show. Uh, and his version of quality is to take the bending away from benders, which of course Amon can do because he's a bender himself. He's a bloodbender, um, and we learned that through like backstories and Avatar flashbacks and et cetera, et cetera, and all that stuff. Um, I I think Amon is a great villain. I think he works as a a wonderful foil to uh, Korra. I think he was a wonderful great villain for the show showcasing the power of non-benders which was never really brought up before in the show except for maybe Sokka um and I guess the mechanist um but it made a lot of sense for the beginning of the show to go like technology is different people have weaponized it this is what it looks like you know this is what it looks like when it's taken to an extreme and Amon is of course beautifully played by Steve Bloom uh who makes several appearances throughout the show um He's he's pretty easy to pick out once you have an ear for it, so you can find him here, there, and everywhere. Um, and it's it's a good goddamn villain. Um, naturally, his his ending uh, is pretty pretty like kind of punches you right in the gut. Um, I I love what happens with Amon and his brother Tarlock. Pretty sure it's Tarlock. Um, the council member who is also a bloodbender, but it doesn't particularly matter. Um, I'm just scanning like through the, uh, the episode summaries, a lot of romantic struggles and conflicts, which honestly I do like. Um, I like you. Well, I I'm with her. I can't like you. Oh, I like you too. Well, we're going to break up all that stuff. It's, I eat it up with a spin. Um, that kind of drama crap. Um, Again, that is that is Mako's sole purpose in the show is to be the the fucking catalyst for that. Um which is fine. I mean, that's really his whole fucking purpose. Um Season one also does more fan service than any of the other seasons. Which also makes sense because it was the first season. You need to get people interested in the show. Um and so there would be things like Dante Bosco coming back to be the voice of General Iroh, and everybody's like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, ha, ha, he, he. Um, and then, of course, all of, like, the Aang flashbacks, where we see Sokka in a flashback, and we see Toph in a flashback, and we meet Toph's kid, and all the metal benders are around, and they're rad as hell, thanks to Toph. And I do love the addition of metal bending, because as technology progresses, and we get cities and buildings and stuff like that, it makes a lot of fucking sense for there to be metal benders, and I love the fact that they're the cops. I think that all makes perfect, wonderful, lore-based sense. Uh, yeah, the, the conflict with Amon, Korra's struggles with being terrified, really, for the first time in her life makes for some great goddamn viewing. And that is, unfortunately for Korra, 
um, a, a continuing theme throughout the entire show. Cora gets scared a lot. Um, and then later on, she deals with some pretty heavy trauma, um, both psychologically and physically. Um, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself when we talk about that. Um, season one does a pretty goddamn good job. It's definitely a case of, it's pretty good. It's just not as good as some of the stuff to follow. So as far as my ranking goes, season one is the third best season of Legend of Korra. It, it is so like season one's probably like a A minus season two is fucking, it really plummets in season two. So it, it is much closer to seasons three and four in terms of quality. Um, but it is third for sure. Um, I do enjoy it quite a bit. It does a pretty decent job of establishing its characters, but as I previously mentioned, some of them are stronger than others. Um, Tenzin is a phenomenal character, uh, but much like Asami, Tenzin's character is pretty much hammered out from the moment Tenzin shows up, and he doesn't really go through a lot of changes um, or growth. He basically stays the same, which is the old wise mentor character. Um, and I always love old wise mentor characters. Um, yes. Yeah, season one, pretty good. A minus, you know, it's like that eight to nine, probably eight out of 10. I know it's a B, but fuck you. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm breaking the rules. Doing it my own goddamn way. Talk about season two. Season two. I had to live up to two things. I had to live up to Our Trial Last Airbender, and I had to live up to season one. And unfortunately, it failed on both accounts. Now, there are there are a couple of highlights from season two. One, we meet the first Avatar in one. And while I do like that episode, um, and I like the lore it brings in, for the most part... Rava and Vatu are just kind of meh. And that's the problem with the season. It's very meh. Um, I appreciate the fact that it was like season one was all about airbending, you know. Um, season two is about spirits, the other failing of Korra as an avatar. And while she did connect with her past lives at the end of season one, by the end of season two, no, nah, that shit fucking matters. Um, but we'll get into that. Season two introduces one character that I think is fun and then a bunch of fucking characters who are just once again kind of there season two brings us the joy that is varick and julie and to me varick is a, a jack sparrow like character who has the facade of kind of bumbling charismatic incompetence um but in reality they're fucking super with it and are like in perfect control of everything and it's all just an act and it's a show so that's why I go with Jack Sparrow because in the first Jack, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean movie, that was what Jack Sparrow was. And then they, the writers lost sight of that. And then as the movies progressed, Jack Sparrow became a bumbling idiot who didn't know what the fuck was going on ever because he was just a drunken, trashed asshole. But in the beginning, he it was it was a performance, and he actually was in, he, he was super smart and super strategic, and he had a fucking great idea. And that's what made Jack Sparrow so awesome as a character. That's what makes Varric so much fun as a character. I do I do love Varric. I love that he like plays both sides. I love that he'll use any means at his disposal to get what he wants. Um, but just like Asami and Tenzin, he's pretty much developed right out the gate. Which isn't a bad thing. It's just, I like characters that grow and change. And if you present me a fully formed character right out the gate with very little for them to kind of grow and do, it's kind of hard to really get behind them and, and watch them grow as a character. Korra grows as a character. Bolin grows as a character. And that's it. Everybody else stays pretty much the same. And I suppose there's like Janora and the fucking kids, but at, th at that point, it becomes like character overload and there's too many fucking people to care about. The show does a, f a fine job of developing the kids, but I'm not going to waste time talking about them here because they're, they're like forever relegated to B and C plots. Um, and they're not bad characters. I love all the kids. Even, even Milo, even though I would have gotten rid of his farts, but that's just because I'm a fucking grown man and fart jokes don't need to be in anything. 
don't get me wrong, I appreciate a good fart joke, but it's just like, it's it's easy, it's too easy. Come on with something else. Yeah, so they're fine, but I just I just can't be bothered. Um, also, in season two, we see the return of Iroh, who has made a permanent home in the in the spirit world, which is fun as all hell, and I loved seeing Iroh again. That was just that was just great. Um, the spirit world uh, is it's a little different from how we've seen it in the past. Um, couple more callbacks. I know, like the whole Rava and Vatu balance between good and evil thing. It kind of fits, and it makes sense, and it explains why, like, the past lives and the, the reincarnation and all that stuff is explained. Um, so I don't mind basically any of that. Um, also, season one invented planes, but that doesn't really matter for, for things. Um, Unalak, right? Season two's villain, Unalak, uh, Korra's uncle, um, sucks. His, his... Drive his purpose as a villain for me is never satisfactorily explained. He wants to release Vatu and kill the Avatar to restore balance, whatever the fuck that means. They say it a lot. It's kind of like a cop out. It's kind of like the Star Wars prequel stuff where they were always talking about, like, is he the one to bring to fulfill the prophecy and bring balance to the Force? The fuck does that even mean? Technically, as far as I'm concerned, the world is forever out of balance because of the presence of the Avatar without a goddamn direct counterpart. You've permanently removed the, the, the evil spirit from the equation, so the balance is forever permanently shifted in the good guy's direction. So there's no balance. Balance would be the, the, the good spirit and the evil spirit constantly fighting each other forever. Then it'd be, then it'd be a perfect even 50-50 split balance. But because they never really explain what the fuck that means, and because it means different things to different people, like Unalog's version of balance to the world is different from Korra's version of balance to the world, and it just, it, all that fucking shit. And, and season two does a little bit too much of like the Horcrux crap, where it just throws just fistfuls of new shit at you. Harmonic conversions, Vatu and Rava, or whatever the fuck, and all this other crap. And you're just like, I don't know what the hell's going on. And Asami's company is going under out of business. And Varric's there. And he's being sneaky and trying to kill the president. And Bolin's making movies and all this shit. And all the fucking, oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Oh, fuck. Oh, it's a big spirit fight. Oh, it's the end of Gurlagen. And they're just fucking duking it out in the middle of this fucking lagoon. It's a giant blue core. And it's the giant Unavatu or whatever the fuck they called him. And then Jinora shows up and she's like this golden beacon of magic spirit light. And for some reason that resuscitates Rava and Korra is able to get Rava back and she restarts the Avatar cycle even though she lost the connection to all of her past Avatars. And now she is both the, the last Avatar of the first cycle and the, the second Avatar of the second cycle. And season two just kind of ends. It's a fine season. I'd probably give it like a C. Which is pretty low. It is the worst of all the Avatar seasons. Hands down, bar none. Full stop. Everything, every other season of uh, both Korra and Aang is better than this season. This is as low as it ever gets. There's still a lot of stuff to enjoy out of this season. Um, I think it's got some pretty funny moments. I think Korra grows exceptionally as a character in this season. Um, like, her her trying to, like, find her own way and make her own decisions. And, of course, she sides with Unalog and makes, like, the worst decision of her life and... All that stuff, I think, is makes a lot of sense. Uh, this season develops and introduces Boomy and Kaya, um, Tenzin's siblings, um, and I enjoy them. Um, they play a fairly decent role in this one, uh, in this season, but they're, they're kind of relegated to just kind of being there later on. The show suffers from, I don't say it has too many characters, but since it couldn't develop satisfactory character arcs for like its main core team avatar it probably had too many characters um i think uh some of those characters probably should have been relegated to like guest stars and then just sent them off on missions to, to go do things and not be there um mako's story in this season doesn't matter at all bolin being a movie star is very entertaining um and he, he grows somewhat at least he's doing something interesting. 
Mako's just kind of there. He gets framed for some shit and blah, blah, who gives a shit and blah, 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 blah. Also, there's now democratically elected presidents, but he's just kind of also there. Um, yeah. So, it's, it's a fine season. Um, it's not the worst I've ever seen, but it is the worst I've seen of this show. So, sticking with my solid C and my labeling of it is bad. Let's move on to season three. can't even talk about season three without also talking about season four but i'm gonna give it a shot so i don't know what i'm about to say for certain um but i will mention that i am confident that between season two and season three is when the show was only available on nick.com um and that freedom is so fucking visible in season three First of all, we get the strongest villain out of anything. I think these villains are more narratively interesting than Ozai ever was. And I love Ozai as a villain, but he is just the constant looming comic book threat. These guys, the Red Lotus, have subtlety. They have personalities. They have moral ambiguity up the ass and they're fucking cool as hell. They are the strongest villains to come out of either show. And I will fight you on that. You've got Zaheer, right? This dude who wasn't a bender until harmonic conversions on the end of season two made a whole fucking mess of new airbenders. And now he's got airbending. And he uses that airbending to get the fuck out of prison. And he spent his whole life studying the like the air legends and air nomad history. And he's all about this guy named Guru Lahima who could fly on his own without the need of a glider or a bison. He could just straight up fly. Uh, and he's got his buddies. He's got, um, I need to look up their fucking names because I'm not going to goddamn remember. Um, let's see. Uh, I want to, let's see. Uh, uh, Ming Hua. Uh, the armless waterbender who uses waterbending to create these tentacle-like arms uh, performed by uh, Grey Delise or Grey Griffin uh, who you'll all know as being the the uh, voice actor for Zula in, uh, in season one so that's great. Zaheer is uh, played by Henry Rollins um, who does a, a pretty goddamn good job. I thought he'd kill it um, in that role. Uh, there is a, a new combustion bender uh Plea, I believe uh, her name is, uh, voiced by Christy Wu, uh, who does a great job. And then you've got the Lava Bender Gazan, uh, voiced by Peter Giles. Um, all of them do a great job. Their introductions of everybody like breaking out of prison and prisons designed to hold them through their like very particular style of bending, I think is great. Uh, Zuko comes back, played by Bruce Davidson in this season. We meet uh, Lin's half-sister, Suyin Beifong. Um, and hell, what's great about this season, one of the reasons I, I think it's written at the same time as season four, is that this season actually backdoor pilot introduces Kuvira, who of course is the villain, if you can call her that, for season four. She's the antagonist for season four, um, I'll, I'll say. Like, she definitely, she's probably the most morally ambiguous character of them all. Um just barely I mean probably tied with these guys so these both both the Red Lotus and Kuvira do bad things for sure but they have such at their core like simple principles that you can't help but go okay I see your point I don't like your methods but I see your point um, so here in the Red Lotus, they're basically anarchists, um, where they're basically wanting equality. Hey, remember that one? Hey, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? Say no Equality for the world. And their version of that version of equality is to eliminate world leaders and the nations, basically making a unified planet where the, the only like method of order is the natural order. You know, the strong will survive that sort of darwinistic uh ideal uh where you wouldn't have things like um structure and society and culture to prop you up 
Instead, it would just be on the strength of your own abilities and your own back and what you you yourself can accomplish. Um, and while you can argue there's merit in such concepts, uh, their methods of murder and sedition and destruction probably not the greatest way to go about it. Um, but I love their character introductions of them all breaking out of prison. Um, I love the the idea of rebuilding the Air Nation. Um, and of course the show introduces the brand new fucking characters of like Opal and Kai and all the metal bending clans and Zalfu and all these new elements, which throughout the course of the show make perfect sense. And they're all done pretty decently well. Um, uh, but the, for the sake of this review, I do not have enough time to recap all these characters and give opinions on all of them. There are too many characters and I do not care enough. About, about these characters as individuals in order to do that. Um, it's just it's just not happening. Uh, Mako is even less effectual in this season than he has been in previous seasons. Uh, Bolin's basic story arc in this is that he learns to lava bend by the end of the season. That's basically it. Um, also, he and Opal get together. Hip, hip, hooray. We just never spend enough time with them in order for them to really develop that relationship to the point where I give a rat's ass about it. There are too many characters. It's just, it's just too many characters. Um, let's see. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely adore the Red Lotus. Um, and this season is so fucking great to watch. Um, and I mean, we've got the, the Earth Queen who's kidnapping airbenders to fight in her personal army. Um, and Korra releases all the airbenders. And so the Earth Queen wants Korra kidnapped and... They eventually do do that. Um, the Earth uh, Kingdom captures Korra. Um, and on their way to bring him back to the Earth Queen, the Red Lotus show up to the Earth Queen. And they're like, we want the Avatar, but we'll tell you where the Airbenders are. So they make some sort of deal. Um, and then, uh, obviously, shit breaks bad. And Zaheer ends up killing the Earth Queen due to asphyxiation. Um, in episode 10 of season 3, Long Live the Queen. Nah, <laughs> hee Seeing the Earth Queen get asphyxiated by having the air literally bent out of her lungs and swirl around her where her eyes are bugging out and she's actually choking like on screen um, and like lingering on that shot. It was like the, maybe not the first indication that shit was different, but for the sake of what we, you gotta remember that this was a fucking kid show. Um, I think it was like Y14 when it first came out. Um, well, no, on, on fucking Netflix, it's Y7. So, according to Netflix, seven-year-olds are totally, totally able to watch the fucking Earth Queen get choked out like she fucking did. Um, and that was fucking nuts when that first came out. Nothing like that happened in, in goddamn Aang, Avatar Last Airbender. Um, because they would just never think of that. But... This is like, I mean, bloodbending got pretty close. And in season one with, with the bloodbending, especially like psychic bloodbending, like we got elements of it, but nothing on this scale. Like nothing to the point of like ripping the blood out of people, right? This is taking the air out of somebody's lungs, um, which is, it was, it was pretty next level. Um, and, it, and it changed the expectations of the show. Like previous like barriers of what the show could showcase with bending were gone um and the show goes on to do two more things that were shocking as far as those expectations one is the death of plea which involved her combustion bending and then getting her head wrapped in metal where she exploded her own head that's what happens it's done so quickly um, and basically all you see is the smoke afterwards. You don't even hear the sound of the explosion. You just see like the smoke of her blowing herself apart. And then she's just gone. So that was pretty fucking metal too. Unlike the Earth Queen though, pretty much done off camera. You see just enough of like her, the combustion bedding being formed, the metal casing going around her head, and then the metal casing glowing from the inside um, to know what the fuck happened. So that was another like, we're breaking down that barrier and shattering expectations. The final thing that makes this season so fucking good 
is that it pulls in my so the closest thing I can compare this to is the end of season two of Airbender um, where Aang fucking loses right he goes down Korra wins the fight but she is destroyed because of how close the here came to killing her and because of the mercury poisoning like an insane amount of mercury poisoning like I don't know like a gallon of mercury went into her into like straight into her muscles and blood an unreal level of mercury like I can't even fathom any normal person would have died in probably moments minutes I don't know but you can't have metal pumping around your heart and lungs and brain and be okay you just can't like that's nope and Korra fucking suffers and I love it um like that's one of the reasons why Korra grows so much as a character is because of the the sheer amount of suffering they put her through like starting at the end of season three and then carried over into season four is like makes her such a fucking compelling character um yeah season three like nine out of ten uh as far as i'm concerned gosh yeah you know what because of how it ends um and the implications of it i think i think season three is probably my number one um but it's so fucking close with seasons four but if I had to rewatch one right now, I'd rewatch season three because the villains are just so much fucking fun. They are so entertaining and they are so interesting, and I I love their power and I love how kind of casual they are. Um, and Zaheer is just so what's it engaging. He you just you just can't help but like listen and watch and you're like you're on the edge of your seat. He's just such a well put together villain. Whoever came up with that fucking whole Red Lotus thing is just excellent. Two thumbs up. Season four of Legend of Korra. Uh, I believe when this when this show first came out, it was supposed to be like a couple of specials. Um, and then obviously it expanded and like each season was like kind of up in the air, but... Season four, um, I think, does a pretty decent job of wrapping it up. Um, and, of course, just like Avatar Last Airbender, these stories continue and are still being written today um, in graphic novel form. And I will end this podcast episode by talking about uh, the first Legend of Korra graphic novel, Turf Wars. But we're not there yet. We're talking about season four. So... Three years passed between the episodes of season three and season four, and quite a lot has changed. Number one, Mako is still completely fucking useless, but now is being completely fucking useless as a bodyguard for the Earth King. Number two, uh, Kuvir is around. Essentially what happened after the death of the Earth Queen is that the Earth Kingdoms fell into complete chaos. And so the world leaders around the world elected somebody, in this case Kuvira, to uh, bring stability to the Earth Kingdom after Kuvira proved themselves by re by establishing peace in Bossing Say, and so begins uh, this reunification process under Kuvira, where she's going basically from Earth Kingdom state to Earth Kingdom state, and having them swear fealty to her um, uh, against like bandits, and she'll protect them with her army and all of these things. Kuvira is beautifully played by Zelda Williams. Um, and I mean, everybody loves Zelda Williams. She is fantastic, both as a person and as a performer. She is phenomenal. So I, you won't hear me say a, a bad thing about Zelda, um, because there's nothing bad to say about Zelda. Um, and when I referred to Kuvira as an antagonist and not necessarily a villain, right, Amon. He wanted to wipe out all bending and basically unify the world into normality. While well, he himself was better. Villain. Uh, Unalak wanted to destroy the planet. Villain. Red Lotus wanted to kill the Avatar and kill all world leaders and create a universe of anarchy. Villains. Probably also antagonists, but definitely villains. Kuvira. 
wants to unite the Earth Kingdom. Antagonist. There's nothing inherently wrong with that simple statement of wanting to unite the Earth Kingdom. How she goes about it, yes. Methods, definitely something wrong with that. Um, and then, of course, her invasion of Republic City and her just fucking killing oodles of people. There's another, that's that's another barrier that uh, Season 4 broke, which was most of the time, stuff like this goes to great pains to imply characters you don't know get killed, but you never really see it, right? Like, they spend a lot of time evacuating the city um, before Cuvier shows up. So you go like, oh, this building's just been destroyed, but it's empty because they evacuated the city, so nobody died. Like, they do that, right? As Kuvira approaches Republic City in her giant fucking mech suit, uh, we see a conversation between some guards who go radio Republic City there a week early, and then Kuvira absolutely destroys that whole fort with her spirit weapon. So those characters who you saw and heard from canonically die about 15 seconds after you've meet, you've met them for the first time. Shows, like, almost never do that. And I remember seeing that the first time, like, the show introduced these characters and then killed them before your eyes. And so you have no, like, there's no way to disassociate that. Like, those characters you just witnessed and got to know for a little bit, fucking dead. That's how quick it happens. Um, and that never happened before. It was always implied, or you could always rationalize away from it. Those motherfuckers are dead. And Kuvira just straight up killed them villain so yeah um so Kavira Kavira's motivations and stuff make a ton of sense and I can super sympathize with them as a character um and uh, another thing that I want to mention about this show is that the so outside of plea um oh god at the end of season three I think Zaheer is Zaheer's definitely alive, because he shows up in this season. I think the waterbender is still around, and I think the other two died out of the Red Lotus. Unalak fucking dissolved, and Amon exploded. Um, Kuvira just gets arrested. Um, and in terms of the show, we never see her again, because obviously when she's defeated, the show ends. Um, and I'll talk about the graphic novel when we get there. Um, so that's, that's something that's interesting. But for me, Korra's recovery and the representation of mental trauma, I don't want to diagnose what it was. I'm pretty sure it's post-traumatic stress, but like, that's the thing about representation of literally any kind is that you want it to be done well and you want what is being showcased on the screen to be referred to by the same by, by what it is. The show canonically, in and of itself, doesn't ever really put a name on it, right? She's she's dealing with mercury poisoning, but they never call it mercury. They just say there's like poison or whatever in your veins, um, which is technically inaccurate because if it's in her blood system, then it would be a venom. But whatever, it's a toxin. Let's go with toxin. That's pretty universal. Um, but no, they never go like, you have PTSD, you know, it's never that. It's, it's just like trauma and you need to like rest and recover. And Katara is really helpful as far as her rehabilitation and learning how to walk again, um, from the, the mercury poisoning. And then Toph shows up, who's just always great, um, and helps Korra get through the spiritual block so that she can reconnect with uh, Rava and get the rest of the Mercury out of her system herself, which of course is very self-amazing. This whole season is about Korra recovering and growing as a person, and every episode that does, like, it's all phenomenal. Her defeating her own demons, her conquering her, her fear of her past villains, her defeating the metal within her, her facing Zaheer and reconnecting with the spirit world again th with his help, all of that fucking stuff, all that growth is so fucking good to see. And I wish that kind of crap happened in all the other seasons. It does a little bit here, there, and everywhere, just not on this scale. They beat Korra down hard, and it took her three fucking years, probably three and a half, depending on how long, like, season four actually is, 
to bounce back from that shit and recover as a person. And even by the end of season four, she's still not 100%, but she recognizes that she has a long way to go. And of course, that's the first step in any kind of major recovery. Um, but I, I absolutely adore that. Korra as a character, just 10 out of 10. Like, I, I, I love everything Korra does. I think Korra is, is phenomenal. Um, and the fact that they recover and they recover in a way that you feel the time it took. It doesn't feel rushed. It felt balanced. It felt fair. And the fact that she wasn't like, I'm all better now, um, later on was smart because you don't ever really, you know, it just gets easier. It never goes away. You never, it never goes away. It's just, it's just always there. Um, and it's just something you carry and you learn to adapt and you persevere, you know, it's just, that's part of it. Um, so I, I thought that was, that was really smart. Um, and I think for the sake of, for the sake of this review, I absolutely adore season four, but let's talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is Korra and Asami, Korra Asami. First of all, representation of any kind is phenomenal. However, I have seen more recently far better representation. Not that I'm saying this is bad representation. I just don't think it was enough representation. And I believe the fault for that lies on Nickelodeon's shoulders. Um, because as far as I'm concerned, the ending of this show is pretty ambiguous when it comes to their relationship. Um, I know everything that like the creators and the writers said after the fact. Like, nope, Korra Asami is canon. Yep, that's exactly how it goes. X, Y, and Z, blah, 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 blah. But it just, I wish it was more. And I wish it was longer. That's the other thing. Season one, it's all about like the love triangle between Mako, Asami, and Korra. Season two, it's about Mako and Korra being terrible to each other. Season three, it's nothing. It's just Mako being awkward around Korra and Asami. Um, and then season four... Honestly, like, outside of a couple of conversations and a couple of moments, there's no indication whatsoever, except maybe when Korra blushes when they're talking for, like, 30 seconds, that they have feelings for each other. And then this happens at the very end, and they just hold hands and walk into the spirit portal. Could have just been doing that as friends. Like, that's, that's my problem with it. I don't have a problem with, like, the... I, I love... Korra and Asami and any representation in any of these shows I think is worthy of being celebrated I just don't think it was enough and I don't think they developed it enough over the course of the show in order for it to feel earned it almost feels like like pandering a little bit um, but on the flip side I like that neither Korra and Asami are their sexual orientations that's another fault that I see a lot with representation. Like, oh, here's a character, and they're the gay one. That's their character. Um, that was not the case here. It's it's like outside of, you know, the, the romance triangles, right? That kind of stuff never really factors in, especially in the later seasons. It's just not a priority for, like, where these characters are. It just doesn't matter. Um... But, you know, it is still a part of their character. It is not their character. And that is the correct way to do it. So, even though the representation was pretty small, um, and I wish there was more of it, it's still good representation. Because as far as I'm concerned, they did it right. I just want more of it. That's my biggest complaint. Is that I wanted more of it. Um, and I, I wish it was a bit more developed. But at the same time, I'm glad it wasn't, like, beating you over the head with it. You know? Um... And it's, it was left ambiguous for a lot of reasons. None of them are particularly good. But I suppose it's also left ambiguous that you can draw your own conclusions if you're one of those close-minded fucks who doesn't think that sort of relationship is okay. Um, however, thanks to the magic of graphic novels, we're able to explore their relationship in a bit more detail. But before I talk about the graphic novel, I will give season four a, just another nine out of ten. Um... I, I like season three a little bit better, but I also love season four. And I think Korra as a whole, as a show, is very good. I don't think it's as good as Airbender, but that's just an unobtainable goal. 
I think as far as a follow-up show goes, I think it exceeded my expectations, especially on a rewatch. This was the first time I rewatched it since the episode aired back in like 20 fucking 14. Um, and I thought it was great. And as long as some of the people involved in these episodes, like, like the writing staff here, especially, um, thanks to, hold on, let me get his fucking name. Um, Michael Dante DiMartino, who is really the, the one who's like, holding a goddamn torch alive for this stuff. Um, I don't want to, like, discount uh, Brian's contributions, but, I mean, Michael is the one writing the goddamn graphic novels. And Brian is uh, more of, like, a sounding board, more than he is actually, like, kind of writing this stuff. You may notice that as you watch Cora that Michael uh, Dante DiMartino shows up a lot in varying roles. He either wrote the episode or he helped direct the episode or X, Y, like Michael and Brian wrote all of the episodes of season one. Um, and then later on there, there's a lot of other writers that are, are brought in and other directors, but um, I feel like Michael is just more involved. I could be off base, but I'm pretty sure he's just more involved. Um, especially because he wrote the fucking Legend of Korra graphic novel, which I'm about to talk about. But no, I absolutely adore Legend of Korra. And it gives, this show being good, gives me hope for the Avatar Studios and new stories and new content coming out involving this world. Whether they go back in time and adapt the Kyoshi book um, into um, like visual media or the other graphic novels or they tell brand new stories or they continue Korra story. Whatever they decide to do, I have faith in that it will be good. Because when they were presented the challenge of coming up with a follow-up show to the greatest animated show of all time, they actually did a pretty goddamn good job of doing that. And that is pretty fucking impossible. This is one of those rare instances where lightning, for the most part, struck twice. Um, and that is so fucking rare. Um, and I challenge you to point out another example where that happened and succeeded and was good. So, there you go. Let's spend the last little bit talking about the graphic novel. And finally, I want to talk about the graphic novel, Turf Wars. But before I do that, I just want to mention real quick that I liked Bolin's character arc in Season 4 as well. Working for Kuvira and doing what he thought was right, even though like everybody was against him, and then realizing that Kuvira was a monster. I loved that whole little storyline. I thought that was great. Um, I just wanted to throw that in because I mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast and then I forgot to talk about it and now I'm mentioning it now. Anyway, Legend of Korra, the Turf, or Turf Wars rather, I have the, the it's called like the library edition on uh, on Amazon. It's massive um, in terms of size, which is pretty great because it really gives you an appreciation of the art uh, within the book itself. I'm holding it actively in my hands and I just finished it like 30 seconds ago. The art's pretty good. Um, Mako looks a little weird, but outside of that, I mean, every character that you know from the show is pretty recognizable and all that stuff. Introduces a new villain, but he's so much of a nothing that I don't particularly care to talk about it. Um, and the plot itself is pretty good. Um, the, the whole graphic novel is roughly the equivalent of maybe an episode of the show, possibly two if you really stretched it. Um, while I would say the same thing actually about, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, the first one, the, the, the promise, um, I would say that's about an episode's worth of content. Um, it's this, this graphic novel, the, the Turf Wars is, is pretty good. Uh, the art's good. Story's good. It makes sense. It takes place uh, immediately after the events of season four. Uh, like the first couple of pages are all about Korra and Asami's vacation in the spirit world. And, um, unlike the show, the graphic novel has no illusions or ambiguity whatsoever about the state of their relationship. They are absolutely together. Um, you see them kiss in the graphic novel and they go and like have a lot of cute conversations in the graphic novel and it's fucking adorable and it's sweet and I love it. Um, but at the same time, they also go through some growing pains. Um, there's a, there's a wonderful, I don't know what you'd call it, a forward, I guess at the beginning of the, the graphic novel. Yeah, from Michael Dante DiMartino, who wrote this graphic novel, by the way. Um, 
uh, along with, uh, let's see, written by, yeah, Dante, Michael Dante DiMartino. Um, and then the art was done by Irene Coe. Uh, colors by Vivian uh, Ning. It's just, it's fucking great. But in the foreword, um, Michael talks about the representation of Koro and Asami in the show and how he wanted to develop their relationship uh, to where it had some growing pains, but it wasn't like constant fighting. Um, you know, he wanted it to just be a, a, like a good relationship. And I think it is. Um, one thing that I will say for Cora, she says, I love you pretty quickly. She said it to Mako, um, at the end of season one, granted he said it first, but by the end of the first, you know, graphic novel, which as I said, would be about an episode of the show, uh, Cora and Asami admit their love for one another. Granted, they've known each other for fucking years, so I'm okay with it, but you know, it just seems a little fast, but whatever. Um, and the, the scale of the problem in this graphic novel is pretty small. Uh, but there's a couple of developments in this that I thought was interesting. One, Julie becomes president. Um, she, she runs against Raiko, uh, and defeats him with 68% of the votes, which is pretty insane. Uh, so, so that was interesting. Obviously, Koro and Asami got together. Um, Mako uh, left arm, the one he used to, to lightning bolt the, the vines, um, uh, is in a sling cause he can't, uh, firebend with it. And, uh, Bolin became a cop and then stopped being a cop all within the course of this graphic novel. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. And then a new villain showed up, but he's just kind of there, uh, because he needed some struggles. Uh, I thought it was really good and I will immediately be buying the, the second one. Um, it's, it's in three parts. That's why I got the library edition. I, I, I always get with graphic novels. I like to get the, the volume collection, um, rather than get also correction. I apologize. Um, it's not technically a graphic novel. It's an omnibus because a graphic novel needs to be, it can't be a collection of comics that were released individually and then stapled together a graphic novel is released as like the whole story day one so the adventure zone are actually graphic novels because you don't get like individual issues of those you just get the the final product this is an omnibus because it's it's three issues stapled together to make the volume um and i always like to go for the volumes because while i love this style of storytelling, I love the art and I love the tales it can tell, especially when it continues stories like Avatar. Um, I hate the comic book culture where it's like you get six pages of story, you know, every couple of weeks or whatever. I just, I don't like that. Um, I would rather be patient and wait for the whole story to be released and then buy the, the collection at the end of it. Um, this is basically the only way I do comic books. Um, or anything of this visual literary nature um, is with the with the big volumes. And I thought this one and the Avatar one were great. I like this one a little bit more. Um, and that is 100,000% the relationship between Korra and Asami. Um, I would love more of that in this, in this graphic novel. But I feel like at that point, um, I just need to start reading fan fiction. Like that's... That's the only place I'm going to be able to scratch this very, very particular itch. It's never going to come out of canonical information because they're never going to dedicate that amount of time to just their relationship. And that's basically all I want. Um, but I, I like the blend and the little, the little nuggets of their relationship that we do get in the graphic novel is very much appreciated. So here we are at the end of all things. When it's all said and done, Korra is phenomenal. Um, I love that the story continues in graphic novel form. I love that they're still writing it. I love that the Avatar studio is coming around. And who knows, we might see more of Korra's arc, or we might see more of Aang's, or we might get some Kyoshi, or something like that. What I don't want to see is the Avatar after Korra. I feel like they have already played that card and if anything i would just want them to do more things with cora i think i think the that is that'd be the smart move um if it was me and my decision i would just expand on cora um and also if it was me and my decision i would take the graphic novels 
and make them into specials. You know, this this would make a this graphic novel Turf Wars would make a killer like hour long special. Call it a day. Just adapt it. It'd be sweet. You can expand upon it. Add a couple more scenes. You know, you could you could stretch the shit out and make it excellent. Um, that's what I would do as the initial move. And once people are like aware of what the content is and like are involved in getting into it, then you can start breaking down to like some brand spanking new shit. But I think I think they play it safe and adapt the graphic novels. That's what I would do if I were them. It'd be super easy and pretty good. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening to me talk about Avatar Last Airbender and Avatar Korra over the last couple of weeks. You can tell I've been in a bit of a mood, but I figured I wasn't going to do this unless I did it and I wanted to do it and be done. Like, that's that's what I wanted. Um, and I feel like I have done that. However, I've also pre-recorded all of these episodes basically in advance all at once. So I'm not entirely sure when this one's actually going to go up. Um, but just to play it safe, I hope you have a great holiday or had a great holiday. And um, next podcast, next week's podcast, will be back to uh, original form. Um, also, by this point, uh, I have been dropping the chapters for the Kiyoshi book. Um, and if you haven't listened to that, it's pretty fucking phenomenal. So I would highly recommend it. Um, and in case, and before anybody asks, no, I, I won't do an audiobook for the graphic novels. Um, even though the, the comedy of that, I think would be pretty good of me like trying to describe every picture. I don't think it would play well as an audiobook. Maybe if I could set up some kind of like projector screen sort of deal where I could do like a live reading on like a live stream or something and do an audiobook then. I think that'd be kind of fun. Um, as kind of like a like a stream. I don't know. I don't know what the fucking rules about that would fucking be, but who the fuck knows anymore? It's all amb ambiguous and it's nonsense. Anyway, my eyes are like bloodshot from staring at screens all day. So I'm going to go to bed. And uh, I hope you all have a great goddamn day and see you next week for another episode of the podcast. Have a good one, everybody.